Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to the Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Living with climate change means we're going to have to plan for more disasters. And if we're going to have a plan that works, it's got to work for everyone. But currently, there are a lot of people who don't feel welcome at emergency shelters or at the churches that offer food and aid after a disaster. And that includes queer people. There's been cases where a lesbian couple uh, posed as sisters where they can stay in the same family unit um, in an emergency shelter. So those are sort of some of the discriminatory practices that we see happening. New research shows that natural disaster plans across the country are not queer friendly. And neither is California's. Today, how disaster planning leaves queer people out and why we ought to change that. Disaster planning is for people who are in crisis, right? And like queer people should feel comfortable going to a shelter to get food, go to an organization to get aid. Ezra David Romero is a climate reporter for KQED. I think it makes it really hard in these disaster response scenarios to go get aid from an organization or place that you believe may not accept you. Or maybe it's like the usual people who go to those places are all white. Or maybe it's a church, you know, that's like traditionally anti-queer, anti-LGBT. And, you know, if you have all those things going on, like you're not going to want to go get aid from those organizations. And so I think that's why it's important to think about disaster aid and how it can be more inclusive for queer people. So people who are in crisis, who are also queer, want to go get help. Say you're a an older gay man who lives in a place like Santa Rosa, who doesn't have a big system of people to connect with, and the wildfire happens, maybe you don't have a way to get around. Groups of farm workers who are queer and who are maybe might be low income. You could even be like a middle income earner in, in, in a Bay Area and a wildfire takes out your house, right? Like climate disasters are not equitable. If wildfires and other climate disasters are affecting queer people of all types. Yo soy Paloma Reyes y mi pro es ella y soy de Michoacán, México. Paloma Reyes, she's a trans woman and a farm worker up in near Santa Rosa. She's lived there for nearly 20 years, I believe. Llegaron los incendios y pues lamentablemente no pudimos terminar nuestras piscas de trabajo. 2017 Tubbs fire hit and Paloma Reyes was working out in the fields and she said work just dried up. De mi parte, uh, nosotros uh, en ese entonces perdimos tiempo. No, no, no trabajamos. And I know that a lot of farm workers were hit really hard 
by the wild, wildfires, both monetarily and also health-wise, because a lot of them were exposed to smoke while working out in the fields. But how did being a trans farm worker specifically make experiencing this climate disaster even harder on Paloma? I think the main difference between her story and people who aren't trans and farm workers was that she said it took a while to get aid. And that's because a lot of it was religious based and it wasn't somewhere she wanted to go to get aid from. She did eventually get aid to help pay her bills months later. And so she had to rely on her own support group that she's made of other trans women. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? What does she say about what she had to do to survive the Tubbs fire, absent that that support from some of these nonprofits? I think initially she relied on her what she called her trans girls, her trans sisters. On the side, she organizes a group called Santa Rosa Trans Latinas. And the whole goal there is to create community among trans people. And her arm of it is sort of bringing other trans farm workers together so they don't feel isolated. Hay muchas chicas trans como yo, y chicas y chicos que trabajan en el campo también. Ellas trabajan en el campo como yo. I think the biggest thing they did was just literally call each other, go door to door and take care of each other, um, especially if they're having trouble getting aid somewhere else. You know, if they can provide something for their friend, I think that's what they did initially in that moment. El apoyo fue como um, común entre nosotras las chicas trans. I want to transition, Ezra, to kind of more broadly how disaster planning falls short for queer people. I know that LGBTQ plus people are more vulnerable to things like poverty and incarceration and homelessness. Can you actually remind us why that is and why that's relevant when we're talking about disaster planning? Queer people are often removed from their families because of their sexuality. And that can result in a myriad of things, everything from being homeless, being low income, feeling alone, isolated, you know. I'm gay and coming out wasn't easy for me and it wasn't easy for my family. And, you know, it took me a long time to be okay with it all and my family. And so I understand for someone whose family is totally not for them once they come out, this can mean, you know, like you have to go fend for yourself in the world. And then if there's a disaster on top of that, then that feeling of being alone, being isolated without family can be heightened. And so people who are queer don't always have the luxury that someone who is uh, in the straight world does. So, So what is it about traditional forms of disaster and emergency aid that doesn't work well for queer people? Yeah, I think the first thing is so much aid is religious-based or religion-based, right? There's churches, nonprofits have a religious bent. I think people can feel that you have to get saved or like repent, or if you're gonna take aid, it's kind of like you have to give part of yourself too. And I think the other one is just that lots of aid is based off of like traditional families, like a husband and a wife and two kids. And lots of queer people don't fit that, right? You might be lesbian and might be two women, might be gay with two men, you might be a trans person, you might live anywhere in that spectrum or not in it and be queer. So I think 
filling out a fa- form that with like who's your husband or who's your wife, things like that doesn't work a lot of times for queer people. In a lot of areas, governments are over-relying on particularly churches that are not welcoming to LGBTQ plus individuals. Michael Mendez, he's an environmental policy and planning professor at UC Irvine. He's gay and he wanted to do this study with some other queer professors because they felt like there was this hole in disaster planning that was their hypothesis and they were right. Oftentimes we think of the LGBTQ uh, population as being wealthy, white, and male, or what they call the, the myth of gay affluence. And so when people are planning for um, social vulnerability, they, they totally discount the LGBT community because it's characterized as being white and wealthy primarily. The researchers told me about two examples. One where a lesbian couple were trying to get a, a house or a place to stay, you know, during a fire or something like that. And they they wouldn't let them. So they lied and said they were sisters and then they were able to get a place. And then during the hurricanes in Florida, he was saying that a trans woman was taking a shower and they were kicked out because of their gender. And that was very traumatic. And so they just said there's example after example after example. And so those are sort of some of the discriminatory practices that we see happening. Coming up, what one church in Santa Rosa is doing to make disaster aid accessible to queer folks, and what else gets lost if we don't improve our disaster plans. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. So, I mean, you, you talked about how there are these barriers, it sounds like, for, for queer people to access aid. And you mentioned religious organizations. Do you know if any of these religious organizations are doing anything to fix this lack of trust when it comes to disaster aid? There are a lot of churches who are also pro-gay, pro-LGBTQ+. One of those is Christ Church United Methodist in Santa Rosa. And the Reverend Lindsay Bell Kerr, I met with them there. Hi, how's it going? Hey, Ezra. They're doing everything from helping unhoused people on the regular, opening their parking lot to people who live in their cars. And then when a wildfire happens, like it has multiple times in that area, they have all these protocols in place. We try to lower the barriers in every way that we can, and we try to make it really clear in the community that we're welcoming to everyone. Say if you're undocumented and you need food, but you're afraid to put your name down because you don't want to be part of a system, they don't make you do that anymore. They'll bring food out to you. They're just trying to, like, think about how people are coming to them and trying to be amenable to how they can get aid to these people. So if people don't feel safe coming into a church building and we're offering meals or food, okay, we have to-go containers on hand, and I'll bring it out to them. Their whole sort of perspective perspective is to be loving and caring and to have the tenets of the Bible or Christianity. It's just about giving and loving. 
And Lindsay is working hard to be visibly queer in that community there. So when there's a disaster, they can come to their church and get the help they need. That can be true for queer people. That can just be true for unsheltered people who might not feel safe going into a building with other people, right? There's, there's all sorts of ways that we can accommodate and be in the community. That kind of accommodation just requires paying attention to, to how people are feeling and how people are showing up, how people are showing up in a space. So Ezra, that's one example of a church that is trying to fix the way that it provides disaster relief to queer people. How do we more broadly create a disaster planning system that includes queer perspectives? In the study that Michael Mendez and his colleagues put out, they had some recommendations. The first one is that there needs to be comprehensive anti-discrimination policies and training, whether that's like you're a federal or a local or like a state or a county government. You need to have these policies in place that like teach the people who you hire, the people who volunteer, how to value others, whether you're queer, whether you're a person of color, And then they say that resources need to be community-based for planning and response. Basically, they said it'd be great if like existing queer community centers, if they could help train the people there to make them more of a disaster response entities in that moment. So then the people that queer people trust could also help them in that moment with the right information. I think the last thing comes down to the the religion-based aid and there needs to be a wider breadth of places where queer people can go to get help. And, you know, maybe the front line isn't all religion-based organizations. Maybe there just needs to be more. So, I mean, Ezra, we've been talking about kind of the material impact of disaster planning that doesn't keep queer people in mind. But how are you thinking about, like, the emotional impact of climate disasters on queer people? What else gets lost for queer people in the midst of of climate disasters? I think the larger thing at play here or that could be at loss as a queer person is that like person's sense of home, um, which lots of queer people don't have because the coming out process is so complicated and many queer people, you know, are kicked out of their homes or they have to escape. As a queer person and trans person who's always kind of felt on the outside of things, I would say that when I find home and place, that's a hard fought thing. And I met a person named Freddie Francis, a trans person in the Sebastopol area. And Freddie was telling me that fire after fire forced Freddie to evacuate. Freddie had built a, a queer community in the Sebastopol area. And then the fires, after having to leave the fires because of fire so many times, that sense of family insecurity is pressed upon even more. To have that threatened by something so globally out of my control is like, definitely taps on those deep fears and wounds of not having stable home and place. I guess I would say on a slightly optimistic note that definitely finding some of the security and stability within myself as well as in my relationships with my chosen family and loved ones, like, 
is all I can really cultivate to, to fight that because, you know, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. There's just so many queer people in the nine Bay Area counties, right, from the edge of Santa Cruz all the way through the cities and all the way up to, towards like Mendocino. And so to think about how we create space for queer people in our disaster preparedness system right now is important as this climate emergency continues and gets worse unless we fix this large global worldwide issue about burning fossil fuels, which is resulting in fires and things like that that impact people's lives here in the Bay Area. Ezra, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Ezra David Romero, a climate reporter for KQED. This episode of The Bay was produced and cut by producer Maria Esquinca and editor Alan Montecilio, who scored this episode and added the tape. Also, I love hearing your thoughts about our episodes. We just got a really good email the other day about our San Quentin episode. So if you have any thoughts about our show and the things you heard on it, please share them with us. You can reach us via email at thebay at kqed.org or on Twitter at thebayKQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening to The Bay. We are a production of your local public media station, KQED. Talk to you next time. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.